Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Uh, Nice to have some rain, huh? Yes. Uh, Call to worship. Uh, I'll be before call to worship. I'll be reading from the book of John, chapter 3, verses 31 to 36. And I'll be reading from the King James Version, but the Pew Bible is page 980, 980. That's the book of John, chapter 3. Verse 31, he that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifies, and no man receives his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaks the words of God, for God gives not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loves the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believes not the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abides in him. Blessed be the word of the Lord. Morning. Today's gospel reading is from the book of John, 17, 6 through 18. In your pew Bible, it's page 997. I will be reading from the new translation. I have told these men about you. They were in the world but then you gave them to me. Actually, they were always yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything I have is a gift from you, for I have passed on to them the words you gave me, and they accepted them and know that I came from you, and they believe you sent me. My prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me. Because they helping you, I mean, they belong to you. And all of them, since they are mine, belong to you. And you have given them back to me, so they are my glory. Now I am departing the world. I am leaving them behind and coming to you, Holy Father. Keeping them and care for them and all those you have given me, so that they will be united just as we are. During my time here, I have kept them safe. I guarded them so that no one was lost except the one headed for destruction, as the scriptures foretold. And now I am coming to you. I have told them many things while I was with them, so they will be filled with my joy. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They are not part of this world any more than I am. Make them pure and holy by teaching them your words of truth. As you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. Thank you. There are lots of things that are interesting about biblical studies, and one of those is the way in which sometimes we find things are structured. 
Scriptures are, among other things, works of inspiration, but they're also works of genius. The way in which these things are structured sometimes, using devices that help us repeat thoughts and patterns in different ways is amazing. So the structure I want to highlight for you this morning, many of you got it in your bulletin, and for those of you who didn't, there are extras on either side up here. I'd appreciate it if you'd raise your hand. If you don't have one, the deacons will try to get you one here in the next minute or two. Um, Roger, do you want to pass one down to Alan? And so if you didn't get one of these uh, handouts this morning, just put your hand up and, and somebody will try to get one to you. The piece of paper you're being handed is the work of someone else, a priest by the name of Just. He's done an analysis of the Gospel of John, not just chapter 17, but multiple chapters, and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John also. And the structure that he's identified that I want to share with you this morning very briefly is called a chiastic structure. It's a chiasm. Basically what it is, is it's a device that helps us pinpoint and the author write in the very middle of everything that's going on, the central thesis of what's happening. Now most of you learned in writing class that your opening paragraph should be your thesis statement, your opening sentence, and then your final paragraph should reinforce all of that. That's sort of the reverse of the way a chiasm works. Chiasm has an assertion, an A, if you will, it goes to a B, theme, C, D, E, F, G, even further, culminating in a point that would be the thesis of that particular chapter or book or set of writings. Sometimes a little section of scripture in in biblical studies terms, we call it a pericope. It's another fancy word for a little self-contained section of scripture. A chiastic structure might be present in any of them. In fact, the entire book of John is a chiastic structure. Deuteronomy has chiastic structures. Leviticus 11 is a chiastic structure, for example, dealing with sanctuary. So we have these all throughout Scripture, but it's a device of genius employed. And then retreating from the primary theme, you come back to a, say, a a C prime, uh, B prime, A prime, until you get back to the place you started and have reiterated it. These devices help us see what's important. They help us understand what this part of the gospel is trying to teach us and what this part of the gospel is trying to tell us. And so this morning, in the brief time that we have, what we want to get to is what's significant about Jesus' prayer in John 17. What's really at the heart of what's happening here? And there are so many great things going on in chapter 17. Jesus has just finished this discourse to his disciples in the upper room. This is all upper room teaching theology. This is the night he's going to be betrayed. This is the night he's broken bread with his disciples. This is the night he's stripped himself and washed their feet and modeled servant leadership. He's shown them what it was like to be first by being the least. He's gathered them around the table. He's supping with them. And it's not just any feast. It's a Passover feast. Celebrating the freedom that came to Israel out of Egypt. The night the final plague hit Egypt and the firstborn of everything were destroyed. The blood was painted on the doorposts and on the lintel. They stood with their loins girded, so to speak. They were ready to march, staffs in hand. They had everything ready to go. They didn't bother to leaven the bread because there wasn't time for it to raise. They baked it flat. They were instructed, eat bitter herbs to remind you of what you've been through. Well, I don't think they needed much reminding so early on, but it would become part of the tradition. They slaughtered that lamb. That's where the blood for the doorpost and lentils came from, and they ate it. 
according to the instructions given them by God as they waited for that long march out of Egypt. And when the angel of death passed over, according to the story, any house that had the blood on the doorpost and lentil got passed over, hence the term Passover. And Jesus would now be with his disciples in this monumental feast, reshaping it for generations to come, reshaping it by what he would do and what he would say. Passover would become the communion table. The lamb that would be eaten to celebrate the lamb slaughtered long ago that saved people from the angel of death would now be the lamb slain once for all, Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in this time, he's got one last opportunity to share with them and tell them the truth about what they need to hear. And he's doing this. John 13, John 14, John 15, John 16. We've tried to cover most of that over the last few weeks. And there are chiastic structures even in that. But today we get to the conclusion of that. John 17 is Jesus' prayer. And it's wordy, and it's beautiful, and it repeats itself, it seems, in a couple of places. But let's just open our Bibles to John 17 and take that piece of paper and look at the outline and see if we can make any sense of where this is going and what the key point might be. Jesus starts by praying for himself. Verse 1, after this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. How many times in his ministry did Jesus say, my time has not yet come? Many times, but now he speaks, the time has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you, for you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life, to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only God, and me, Jesus Christ, whom you've sent, the one sent of the Father. These themes are also familiar to us as we've gone through these passages. Jesus is the one sent of the Father, the one in whom there is life, the one in whom all things have been entrusted that God may again be put, that everything may be brought to God and put under his feet, that he may be all in all. Jesus is reiterating themes from earlier in 16, 15, 14, 13. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you. So our outline says, Jesus' hour of glory has come. He gives eternal life and knowledge to believers. This is that A theme that we see in 1 to 3. But I would have strengthened this if I were writing my own by saying, this is eternal life that you may know. That word know is so important. It isn't know, a gnosis in the sense of a a Greek Gnostic sort of salvation by knowing. No, it's not what you know. It's not the secret knowledge you've obtained. It's the very personal knowledge of a living Jesus and a connection with that. Our B prime, our B theme goes from verse 4 on. I've brought you glory on earth by completing the work you've given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. 
They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. He's praying this. Remember, this is just a prayer. Earlier, he had said to the disciples, or the disciples had made this confession in verse uh, 29 of 16. Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you have come from God, that you are indeed the one sent. So right in his prayer, he's referring to this confession. There is this loop that is being closed. The relationship of the Father to the Son, the Son to the Father, the Son to the Advocate, the Spirit that would be sent, the Comforter, to the disciples who are to be a part of all of this and in all of this, the ones that Jesus has been sent to, the ones who've believed. This is all connected And we see in B, 4 to 8, Jesus' work of glorifying and revealing the Father is now finished. So when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, what can we add to the list? We usually say his victory over sin is complete. His agony is done. His time of suffering is through. Now he moves on to glory. But what is added to this is the glorification that Jesus has done is not just his own glory or for the Father in an empty sort of sense. It is a revelation. Do you catch the significance? You see, Jesus in his dying moments doesn't just represent a human son who is suffering political consequences or dealing with the spiritual sort of realities that underlie them all. He is revealing a father who is himself sacrificing, is himself giving, is himself loving, is himself saving, is himself willing to lay down life. Verse 9, I pray for them, those who believe that you sent me. I pray for them, I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they are yours. Now, that isn't human logic, is it? Something's been given to me, it's mine. But in Jesus' way of understanding how this all works, he's been sent to the Father to represent the Father, to glorify the Father, but all things have been given to him and all authority has been given him. So as he finds people who will believe as he teaches them, as he works with them, as that happens. He's now saying, you've given them to me, but they're yours. This is the circle I'm completing. All I have is yours, verse 10. And all you have is mine. There is no separation. And glory has come to me through them. They are my glory. You are the glory of God in this case, in this story. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. So, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. The Lord saves, Yeshua, Jesus. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. And, of course, here Jesus is referring to Judas who came into our vision in chapter 13. So Jesus prays for you, for all who would believe. He prays that the Father will protect them. He he prays that they will remain in him and and as he remains in the Father, that the connection will not be broken, that these overlapping circles will somehow have fulfillment. 
It's a marvelous prayer. It's for you. It's for me. And then we get to verse 13. I'm coming to, to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Jesus is giving this one last piece. This is a transitional and pivotal verse. Can you hear it? I'm coming to you. I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm on my way to you, but I'm still in the world. And while I'm still in the world, and while I'm praying this prayer audibly, and while the disciples are hearing and listening, and while those gathered around me in this room are hearing and listening, I want them to get this affirmation. I want them to understand that even in this moment where I stare down the cross, even in this moment where I face rejection, even in this moment where I face betrayal, even in this hour of loneliness, this time of isolation, in all of this, I speak this so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. God's purpose is that we might live in his joy. Jesus' return to the Father will make the joy of all who believe complete because our faith hasn't been placed in nothing. Our faith, faith has been placed in the living Son of God. 14 to 19. I'll try not to labor this too much. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Let's clarify this really quickly. We all know we breathe air, stand on terra firma, eat food. We all get dressed. We all brush our teeth, I hope. We all do the sorts of things that humans do. When we say this world is not my home, we're actually speaking a terrible lie in one sense because this world is our home, has been our home, and will again be our home. But when we speak of the spiritual sense, we're saying that the values of a corrupted world are not our values. Our sights are on something above, something greater. We're not bound to the tyranny of the lies we're bound to the freedom that comes in the truth of Jesus Christ. So in that sense, we sing the truth. Jesus says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I'm not of it, he says again. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For, I sanctify, for them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. So see, if we're in Christ and he's sanctified himself, we've been sanctified with him. If he's sending us as he was sent, he's completing the work that the Father had to do. There's a full cycle here and it involves you and me. When we live in the truth, that is to say when we speak, when we act in belief, when we carry forward the truth that's being listed here, that's being discussed here, as we are in the Father, just as the vine The branches are connected to the vine. As we abide in Christ and make him our home, this productivity comes forward. The work of Jesus gets redone and done again. You see, Jesus says something very interesting. Sanctify them by your truth. Now, we often want to run to a place like doctrine or something else. No. Yes, our doctrines are supposed to be a kind of truth. But there's a statement said here, your word is truth. Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus is the one sent to speak that word. 
And so now as he talks about his relationship with the Father and the Spirit he's going to send, now as he talks about the power of belief, now as he talks about the ones who've been bound to him by the grace of God, now as he talks about those that he's been sent to, he's asking that this all be folded into a protection. A protection not just from the world, but from the evil one who has been prince of the world. Sanctify them by your truth, for your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. We're covered in his sanctification, in his righteousness. And so, there we see that God, Jesus prays that God sanctify the believers who are not of the world. Again, we want to clarify, not of the world doesn't mean that we don't live here, breathe here, eat here, have human relations here. It simply means that our priorities and values, our beliefs, connect this to something transcendent, something greater. The one who came to the world and the one who went back to the Father from whom he was sent. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message that, they, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There's an old song from the 70s. You probably remember it. We are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. We are one in the Spirit. Yeah, you know it. That song is based on this passage. That's the power of singing Scripture. You see, and we're not one because of uniformity. We're all different, marvelously so. But there's a unity that comes because we have believed. We've attached ourselves as branches to the vine. We've chosen to be in Christ, and he declares that in him we are one. And thus we can sing that song. We may disagree about politics, about issues in the church. We may disagree about lifestyle pieces. We may even argue about a particular doctrine from time to time. God bless us. As it should be. Whoever said it should be different. But we're one. If we've been called by the one sent and we've listened, if we've attached ourselves to the vine, so to speak, we're one. I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe. That's the test, isn't it? The world will know we're Christians by our love, is how that song concludes. They'll know because we're one. Not in some silly, sort of uniform kind of way. Not in some sort of childish, sign-on-the-dotted-line kind of way. But we're one because the Spirit has made us one. That's powerful. That's transcendent. That's connected to the living God and the Son whom he sent. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. That's the love of the Father. The same love he has for the Son is the love he has for you. This is why he calls you brothers and sisters. Servants no more. 
So verse 20 to 23 says, Jesus' unity with the Father completes the unity of all believers. That makes it really important, doesn't it? That through him we're connected, we're unified, we're made one as he is one. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made known you to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. It doesn't get more powerful than that. You can see how the reds connect the blues connect, the greens connect. And Jesus, in this final statement, according to Felix Just, says, Jesus' glory reveals the Father. Believers have the knowledge and love of God that evidences it. I want to read that 25 and 26 again. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I've made you known to them. And will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. And we come back to our thesis statement that the joy may be made complete. That we might believe that Jesus' work, when he says it is finished, is not just a work of sacrifice, but it's a work of connection. It's a work of glorification. It's a work of revealing once again the Father to us in the midst of the distortions that have invariably entered the religious system. And that should be a warning to us too, shouldn't it? We should be aware of the distortions that enter our religious systems. Those things that take us away from a vision of the Father full of grace and truth, who sent the Son, the self-sacrificing God who would have you believe, this loving God who knows you and longs to be known and is revealing in and of himself, this one who wants to bind you to himself in Christ, that we may be all one again, that the universe might be reconciled. This is the call of the prayer of Jesus. I pray that it blesses you this Thanksgiving season. I pray that your joy may be complete. I pray that as you give thanks, you will remember to give thanks for the Son, who's the revelation of the Father, the one sent, in whom we are bound to one another through and by whom we're connected to the Father. May all things now living unite in thanksgiving. Lord, your God in the highest, to you we sing Hosanna in praise. Happy Thanksgiving.